Well, we've been speaking the last few weeks on different aspects of marriage, and I'm going to be continuing with that today, and I'm thinking it might be my last sermon in the series about marriage. I don't know. We'll see how much damage control I need to do next week. Have you noticed that families can get messy? You know, as a pastor, you go to lots of weddings, and sometimes you cannot believe what can take place amongst family members at something like a wedding. No reference to the one last night whatsoever, but sometimes you go to funerals, and it's amazing what's taking place in the dynamics of families that shouldn't really be taking place. Families can be messy. Marriages can get messy. And the problem in all of these situations is sin. That's the problem. Now, I'm not just referring to the sin of the individuals involved in those scenarios. There certainly is is enough of that. But the problem goes way, way back, and we'll look at that a little bit this morning, to sin that took place in the garden with Adam and Eve. Marriage, family, relationships, God's ideal was broken by sin in the garden. And sometimes people are pretty good at trying to hold it together in their own strength, reading the right books, seeing the right counselors, doing all of those things. And I'm not saying there's anything bad with any of that. But quite frankly, the only thing that can repair broken relationships and broken marriages is Jesus Christ and his redeeming power. That's it. That's it. We can look to these other things as helps. They can assist. But it's the transforming power of God. There are so many tragic stories, and you know what? We can look into the Bible and see a whole lot of tragic stories in regards to families. I mean, start with Adam and Eve. You know, they, they had the perfect environment, the perfect relationship. God's perfect design for marriage was in place, and then sin came along. And the dynamics of a marriage changed forever. I mean, look what happened in their family. Their first two two, two boys, Cain and Abel, one of them, Cain, kills his brother. What's going on in that relationship, that family? Abraham, the father of the nations. Abraham married two women, trying to fix some things in the natural It didn't work out so good. He actually ends up sending one wife and the son away, kicks him out of the house, so to speak. Marriage, the relationships were broken. Jacob, he had children from four different women. We always refer to the 12 sons of Jacob. We forget that they they didn't all come from the same mother. And the dynamics there, you could go through a lot of stories in the Bible, but... One of them that we all, almost all are familiar with probably is, you know, the rest of the brothers, 11 brothers, decided to sell one brother into slavery. Pretty dysfunctional family. Broken. David. Man after God's own heart. He had a lot of wives. Scripture's not even sure. Somewhere, between, somewhere seven or eight, the way it looks. Had a number of children. One of his sons named Amnon, he raped one of his half-sisters named Tamar. Tamar's brother, Amnon's half-brother, Absalom, kills him. There's nothing 
functional about a family like that? What was the problem in each scenario? Sin. And the encouragement, the good news there is these were people who God used. And he redeemed in spite of circumstances that took place. And were there, were there consequences? Yes, there always is. But there was redemption. All kinds of tragedy in these broken families in Scripture. And the stories we could come up with today aren't maybe always quite as serious, but they're everywhere. It's not any different. Sin is still destroying relationships, still destroying families, still destroying marriages. How can we have a relationship that God intended us to have, in particular in marriages, which is my primary focus? Is it possible? The answer is yes, and the answer is to be found in Christ and our relationship with him. That's the only place. Can there be good marriages out there? Sure there can, amongst non-believers. But they're never going to be what God intended for them without Christ being the center and the focus of that relationship. Because God knows it's hard, he gave us lots of instruction, and that's my title of my message this morning was Instructions for a Christian Marriage. And he's given lots of them. And I've kind of alluded to some of the things that I'm going to talk about or the primary focus that I'm going to talk about. But because in our culture and our society today, what I'm going to talk about, the two main terms I'm going to be using a lot are almost thought of as being evil or ugly terms. So I didn't have enough courage to do it until the last message. Not really. But we're going to be talking primarily about the kind of submission that a wife is to have to her husband and the kind of love that a husband is going to have to his wife. And I'm going to hopefully show us there's much greater reasons for it than what we normally might think. Actually, some of what I'm going to share I've never shared before because I had not looked at it even from this perspective before. We're going to be looking in the book of Colossians. We're going to be looking eventually at just basically two verses But in Colossians, I would like to encourage you to read the book of Colossians. It's only four chapters long. And it's all about this amazing God, this amazing Savior Jesus. It's about what he has done for us, who he is, what he did in spite of who we were as a a people. It's about uh, his acts as well as instruction. Because it starts to tell us, well, let me just share in Colossians chapter 3 where we're going to be focusing. In verse 1, it kind of alludes to we have a new position in Christ. It tells us that because of what Christ has done, you have been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the things above. In in Ephesians 2, verse 6, it says, we are seated with him in heavenly places. Now, that makes for a great theological discussion. It's something that we know is, is, is there. It's true but we're still living here on earth. But it's way more than just a theological discussion. That reality that we are seated positionally with Christ in heavenly places at the right hand of the Father, that should change everything. If we believe it, we begin to live it, we begin to understand it, that you and I as believers are seated with Christ in heavenly places at the right hand of the Father. This new new position should radically change our lives. In verse 2, chapter 3, it should even change the way we think. Every thought. 
You know, it's interesting. The scripture tells us, take every thought captive. Take those thoughts captive. Our minds can run in so many directions. And one of the primary reasons we should be taking every thought captive is that is the battleground where the devil works. He tries to lie, deceive in our minds. We need to be thinking radically different. In verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are seen here on this earth. We live in this world that in a natural sense feels like our reality. But the reality is, as a born-again believer, we are children of God, we are children of heaven. We are just sojourners here. This is not our destination. This is not our home, according to scriptures. Let's get our, thing, our thinking focused on him, focused on his word, changing things. Verses 4 through 14, they tell us to take off this old self, that old sinful nature. It goes into details and lists a whole bunch of things. But what I want to point out is it tells us to do something. It would be nice to just pray that prayer, Lord Jesus, take all that crap out of my life. And he would look at us and say, I've done all that needs to be done for the crap to be gone. Deal with it. You put off the old man and put on the new man. He made the new man available to us. We can have a new life in Christ, transformed by the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, the renewing of our mind by the washing of the word of God. We don't have to live, and we're not supposed to live, like we did before we became a Christian. We should be changed. And it is a process. It doesn't happen in an instant. The whole ultimate change The part of becoming born again is instantaneous. Now the rest, put off and put on. And he tells us in chapter 3, gives us a lot of instruction, and he finishes those verses. In verse 15, he goes on and says these things to us. We are to let the peace of Christ rule our life. Let the word of God dwell in us richly and then do everything in the name of the Lord. The peace of God. We are supposed to live in that peace. Wow, with the circumstances around us try to steal our peace. There's everything in the world will try to steal our peace. The peace that we have with God. Even the good things that make us feel happy, that is not necessarily the peace that God wants us to have. Because as soon as our peace is attached to something materialistic, it's going to be gone very quickly. It's in Him. Find our peace. These are all the new priorities that we should have as no longer being citizens of planet Earth, but we are now citizens of heaven. Are those our priorities? And Colossians is so good. He doesn't leave us there with the the broad strokes of the paintbrush. He then goes on and gets very specific, and he starts dealing with relationships. And he goes on in verse 18 and continuing, talking about specific relationships that we have in this world and how we should be living them because of all the things that he has done. Without the grace of God in our life, it isn't going to work. We can't do it. What I'm going to share today in these two verses, verses 18 and 19, we can't do it without the grace of God. It doesn't happen naturally. It is not innate in us. Exactly the opposite is innate in us because of sin. So what about our relationships? And how does this affect our marriage? Well, I'm going to start with the ladies. Don't rush to judgment until I'm done. I'm going to start with the ladies because Paul did. In verse 18, he says, Wives, submit yourselves to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. 
as is fitting in the Lord. That word submission usually causes the hair to stand up on the back of the neck of a lot of ladies. How many of you felt it happening right now? No, don't raise your hands. It's because it has such a negative connotation in our society, in our culture today. Because it's so misunderstood. It's been taught wrong. It's been demonstrated wrong. When it's properly understood from a biblical perspective in regards to marriage, there's nothing negative about it. Nothing. There's two different ways it's used primarily in Scripture. You'll see this word used in the Hebrew and in the Greek. It's a military term. The term submission in the sense of a military operation. And when we look at it in the military definition, it simply means arrange under rank or to come under. For example, the sergeant and the captain. When we look at that, there is a difference in rank. There is a difference in authority. But guess what? You go into the battlefield, and if they both have a gun in their hand, they are equal. But they're going to have different roles, different responsibilities. But they are equal on that battlefield in terms of who they are as people. Without that kind of order, without order in anything, there is chaos. And we need to understand that first as kind of a foundational truth. You know, every time I read in Scripture about that all authority is put over us by God, I start thinking about authorities that have existed. I think back into some of the third, Idi Amin, anybody remember him? You've got to be kind of old. He was a tyrant, killing people. He was accused even of being a cannibal. Hitler, Stalin, Lenin. Really? All authority is put in place by God? How can that be a good thing? Any of those people, it gives you an idea of how destructive and horrible chaos would be if there was no leader at all. And we've seen that demonstrated in some third world countries where there's no leadership and the people just start turning on each other and killing each other. Genocide is taking place and it's ugly. Without order, there is chaos. Can you imagine the military and any military maneuver taking place if there was no order? Nobody making the decisions. Nobody setting things in place and telling us what to do. It would be ultimate chaos. In most cases, you know what? Order would actually come naturally because somebody would have to step up and fill the void. God is a God of order. The other definition that is not military-related means to voluntarily have an attitude of giving in or cooperating. And the key aspect there is it's a voluntary thing. In the military, putting in a rank or an order, uh, it's not totally voluntary, is it? But when it's used in a non-military way, it's a voluntary submission or a voluntary uh, cooperation. And God made the husband and wife relationship with order so that it would function properly. Submission does not imply in any way whatsoever that the woman is less than man, that the wife is less than the husband does not mean that at all. They're not inferior in any way. We're equal in Christ. In fact, Galatians 3, 28 says this, there is neither Jew, and the verses that preceded it, this verse has said, you are all sons of God. And then it says, 
There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ, the equality of all in Christ. We are all equal. But equality and unity does not mean that we all have the same roles and responsibilities. It's not the way it works in God's order. So, why is the wife supposed to submit to the husband? Because he's bigger and meaner. Sometimes that's almost the way we think when we hear about submission. The wife is to submit. As unfair as submitting to a husband might sound to some people, when we get to looking at the man's responsibility, I would challenge to say which one is more difficult. And I think they're equally difficult because without the grace of God, it cannot be done in a biblical way. So, the wife. And this is what really caused me to think this week. When I went back to Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, it says this. God said, let us make, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Mankind was created and manifested as male and female. Both are created in the image of God. That's how he created them. Notice the us and the our. Most, and I would agree, I believe it's making a direct reference to what we would call the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The three parts of what we call the Godhead. Doing different things in the role of creation. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And even within that, there is an aspect built right into the Trinity or built right into the Godhead of authority and submission. Remember the scriptures where Jesus would say crazy things like, I don't say anything unless the Father tells me to say it. I don't do anything unless the Father tells me to do it. There is a submission. They are equal, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But there is a role in submission and love are built right into what we would refer to as the Trinity. I believe a very crucial aspect of God's deity or his divineness, his divinehood, if you would, is authority and submission. And it is to be reflected in marriage. Marriage was established to represent, I believe, the image of God. Individuals are created in the image of God. Marriage is created to reflect the image of God. In the Godhead, there was submission and love. The submission that Jesus the Son demonstrated was to a father that he knew loved him unconditionally. And it's hard for us sometimes to work with this whole three-in-one thing. And I don't pretend to understand it completely. But I understand that the three truly are one. But I also understand that they had different roles and different responsibilities in creation. When Jesus was walking on the earth, he was a representation of God on earth at that time. When Jesus ascended to the Father, he and the Father are in heaven. And the Holy Spirit was sent, and he is the manifestation of God on the earth in this day. 
different roles, different responsibilities. And in there, there is that aspect of authority and submission. When God made the female in his image, he put authority and submission into the relationship we call marriage. And it's to be a reflection of the Trinity. But, and that's the big but, sin distorted the image badly. Sin messed up God's divine order for marriage. Sin came. You know, do you think that God had to have a small conference with only two people there after he created Adam and Eve and tell them how to do, do marriage? Here's how I want you two to do life. Here, read these books, and then we'll talk about them, make sure you get it right. No. They naturally, innately knew what it was like to be man and woman, husband, wife, and to do marriage. It was in there. It was part of them, and then sin came. And sin broke marriage. Actually, it broke all future relationships because of sin. We don't even know how to do it right without God. Romans 8, 7 says, The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's laws, nor can it do it. So for the unbeliever, why would we expect it to work in God's design? And that's why I always say no matter how good it might look in a marriage, if God's not involved, it's not his ultimate blessing. It's not his ultimate design. We see the corruption of marriage, the marriage union, right after sin. And notice in Genesis 3, verse 16, God says, Then he said to the woman, So now what's he doing? He's laying out parts of the curse as consequences of sin. He says, he says to the woman, I am going to sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will not rule over you, but, and he will rule over you. There's that, that word uh, desire to. The word desire means control. In some translations it reads, the woman will desire her husband, and he will rule. It doesn't give you the clarity of what's being said. The same word that's translated from the Hebrew there as desire is the same word that's translated in chapter 4, verse 7 of Genesis when God is talking to Cain. He says, what are you so ticked off about? Just do the right thing. If you don't, the devil is crouching at the door and he desires to have you. In other words, he wanted to control you. He wanted to take you. And that's what this word here means. So when we read this verse... It says, and you will desire to control your husband. This is part of the curse. Why do I desire to control my husband? Because it's part of the curse. Why is my husband such a jerk? Because he wants to rule over you and dominate you. Part of the curse. It's not how it was designed. It's part of the consequences of sin and the breaking of marriage and relationships. And when you look at that, it's like, oh my goodness, how do we fix it? We can't fix it. Only God can fix it. God is the only answer. Because of sin, the woman no longer innately desires to serve her husband. But she would seek to control him instead. The man, instead of loving his wife, would seek to rule over her in a dominating way. Neither of those are part of God's design. 
So we see with sin came a loss of this representation of the relationship within the Godhead, between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We no longer look like that, where there is this kind of submission in love. And that's a key, the Father's love and the submission of the Son. You can throw through your Bible as many times as you want. You will never find a place where the Father demands or forces Christ to submit to him. Never. Not one. Biblical submission cannot be forced. It cannot be demanded. And it's the same for husbands. You and I are not called to demand our wives to submit to us in any way. We're to do what the Father did. We're commanded to love her. We're commanded to care for her. We're commanded to serve her. And we're commanded to encourage her to grow in the Lord. That's, those are the things we're commanded to do. And the wife is to submit willingly to be a representation of the relationship we see in the Godhead. Okay, thank you, ladies, for not leaving. At the fall of man, marriage was broken. Submission within a loving relationship was destroyed. And if you think about that, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit trail at all, but if you think about that, God established marriage as the first and the foundation of all of society. And when that's broken, it is going to distort everything else in society. It's going to distort everything else. It's going to distort our education system. It's going to distort our government. It's going to distort everything because of sin and the family. Is it any wonder that Satan hates family so much? Is it any wonder that he wants to attack marriages 24-7? He wants to destroy the very foundation of society that God established. And even greater than that, he wants to destroy any possible representation that the marriage is supposed to have of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He wants to destroy anything that's created in the image of God. That's why we can never let our guard down. Never. There is no marriage that is bulletproof, except with God being in total control. We can never become complacent. What about the husband's? What is our role in this marriage relationship? Well, verse 19 follows, and it says clearly, Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Husbands, love your wives. Don't get bitter and don't get angry, no matter what. Love. We can define that any way you want, but a good idea is let's see what kind of love is Paul talking about here when he's talking to the Colossians. And I'm going to go to his message to the Ephesians and take a look at what kind of love he's talking about. And men, if you think this is easy, we aren't doing it. Because it's not easy and it's not possible without the grace of God. What are the characteristics of a husband's love? Let me read Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 28. And then we're going to look at four different aspects of this kind of love. First of all, it says this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church 
And he gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain, without wrinkle, without any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. When I'm going to go back and look at that little section of Scripture and look at four characteristics, I think of this kind of love. Because if I define it, I make it as easy as possible for me to do. And it's not designed to be easy. Sin took care of that. First, I think it has to be a very realistic love. If our love is not realistic, we can come, become disillusioned very, very quickly. When you look at that, where am I getting it? Is Christ loved the church. Jesus knew the church was a mess. He knew it was filled with sin. It was ugly. He knew you and I were filled with sin. He knew we were enemies of God. He knew all of these things before he ever went to that cross. And he knew, even with this sacrifice, even with what we become in Christ, we were still going to mess up. We were still going to do the wrong things. We were still going to disappoint a heavenly father. He knew all of that, but it didn't stop him. He understood. And as men, as humans, and this would apply to the wives as well, we need to understand that both of us, men and women, have been messed up with, because of sin. It's just reality. We aren't going to be perfect, any of us. We're going to do wrong things. We're even going to do bad things at different times. But there's no excuse for us, guys. He says, love like Christ's love. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what they've done. We need to love them. We're called to love them. We are called to love them through their faults, just like they're called to love us and submit to us through our faults. Giving the grace that God gives each of us. So he's working in our lives. He's working in our lives while we continue to love. That's why it's important that we go into these things. And one of the things, when I do this marriage assessment and pre-marriage or some marriage counseling, one of the things that, that we do is, how realistic is that person's perspective of what marriage is going to be like? How rosy are the rose-colored glasses they're looking at marriage through? Because if it's not realistic, we are going to be so disillusioned so quickly. Statistically, it's astounding how many marriages end in year one of marriage because they didn't have a clue what they were getting into. So it needs to be a realistic love. Secondly, it needs to be a sacrificial love. As Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. So for any of us who might, especially the ladies who might think the wife's role is unfair, look at this aspect of what the man is being held up to as a standard. You need to lay down your life for your wife. It's costly. It requires sacrifice. There can't be selfishness involved or we can't live and love this way. If we're always looking at what's in it for me, 
What do I get? We can't do this. We can't love like this. It's impossible. It's sacrificial. It's only possible through the grace of God. It's only possible through his grace. At times, what that means is husbands, men, we've got to give up some things that we might not want to give up. We might have to give up time that we want for ourselves. We might have to give up entertainment that we want for ourselves. We might even have to give up some friends or at least change the friendships because our wife's needs require it. We might even have to change careers, change jobs. It doesn't matter what it is. It's a sacrificial love. And that's what God is holding us up. That's the standard. A sacrificial love. Challenging. Realistic. Sacrificial. And there has to be a purpose to our love or a motivation to that love. Christ, when I read the scripture in Ephesians, it says he gave himself up for, and then it says, to make her purpose. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. To present himself a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, holy and blameless. That was his purpose. If he hadn't went to the cross and died for us and paid the price for our sins, the church would not be holy and righteous. We are holy and righteous in God's eyes because of the blood of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. Thankfully, when he looks at the church and looks at you and me as his children, he doesn't see us with all our flaws and all our sins. He sees us through the righteousness of Christ. That's how he sees us. That's what allows us to be seated in heavenly places with him. We need to understand that and realize that because Satan will twist that too and to kind of get you to believe somehow you're not worthy, you're not good enough, you keep messing up. How can you do that? What's wrong with you? You know what? God knew all that, knows all that, and he's taking care of it through the cross. Doesn't mean we don't try to put off the old self because we're commanded to, but it doesn't mean we live in guilt and shame and condemnation. We can't possibly, men, love our wives as Christ loved the church if we're walking and living in shame and guilt and condemnation. Christ paid for all that. A purpose. What's our purpose? To love our wives, to help in any way that we can as the husbands. We are to discern their gifts, discern their talents, encourage them to become all that they can become as Christ's daughters, as God's daughters. Help them to identify and discern their callings and then do everything we can to encourage them in their callings. Notice there's not a lot of self in any of that, is there? That's not quite true. Because if we love our lives that way, I guarantee we will be blessed in that relationship because it's getting closer to representing the relationship that God designed for marriage, and he designed it to be a blessing. Realistic, sacrificial, and have a purpose. And lastly, there's a personal aspect to it. You always wonder, I always have wondered, (laughs) you need to love your wife like you love your own body. What in the world does that really mean? I need to love her as much as I'm stuck on myself? That doesn't work. What does it mean? I believe what it could mean is this. Look at how much care even the laziest of us put into taking care of ourselves, 
Hopefully, most of us got up this morning and decided to get our teeth brushed. Maybe we took a shower if we didn't take one last night or it was the right day of the week. We put some clothes on. Praise God, we did that. We feed our bodies. We nourish our bodies. Some of you even work out. Nuts. (laughs) But just think of the care that we put into ourselves. How much care do we put into our marriages? How much effort do we put into our marriages? You maybe have heard the comparison to a garden. An unattended garden doesn't take long to turn into weeds. And man alive, we can be so easily distracted by everything else in our lives, man, that we forget to put our time and effort into our marriages. They don't just continue on this path of perfection without a lot of work. And God gives us the instruction to love our wives with a purpose, and it needs to be a personal thing. We need to love them unconditionally as Christ loved the church. In our culture today, and hopefully not in our minds, but in many of us, we think this way. Submission and authority are ugly words. There should be no issue like that when we do this thing right. There's nothing ugly about biblical love and biblical submission. It brings great blessing to a marriage. It makes us happy and enjoy our marriages when it's done correctly. Close with a couple quick questions. One, what should a man do when his wife won't submit? Boy, did I find some great pictures I could have put up there for that one. My favorite one is still with the caveman dragging her by the ponytail with a club over his shoulder. I found one of the woman. Had the man down on the floor, sitting on top of him, choking him. That's not how it's supposed to be. What does a man do if his wife won't submit? Demand submission? Good luck with that, guys. Get bitter? Yeah, a lot of us have done that. That doesn't work well either. Paul gives us very clear command. Do not become bitter towards her. Do not become angry with her. Do not become frustrated with her. All those words fit in that definition of embitterment or embittered that the Bible uses. We need to allow the love of God to flow through us to soften their wounded hearts. And we all carry wounds. And most all of our wives, all of our ladies carry wounds. And they don't just disappear because they become our wife. And the consequences don't stop just because they finally married their Romeo. We need to love them and allow the grace of God to continue to do his work in their life. Love your wife and trust God. What should a woman do when the man is not loving her and not seeking to spiritually lead? Oh, how many times have I heard that? He's just not a spiritual head of the household. Okay. What do you do about it? Well, I put an open Bible by his bed. I put a devotional by his breakfast plate. And I remind him about 18 times a day that he's not doing, he needs to come to church. He needs to read the Bible to our kids. And, you know, nice things, nag, 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 nag. That doesn't work. What are we supposed to do? What do you do if he doesn't love you like Christ loved the church? You continue to submit to him and pray for him and love him. And gently, 
if you're underlining or writing anything out, underline that twice. Gently encourage him to be the spiritual head of the household. God has called them to do it, and if God calls them to do it, he will give them the grace to accomplish it. Guys, we can all do it. It doesn't matter how amazing your wife is, how much smarter than she, she is than you are. It doesn't matter how much more of the Bible she knows than you do. You have been graced and called to be the spiritual head of the house. Use those gifts and talents. Delegate things to her if she's got those giftings that you're lacking in. That's called leadership. But we are called to do it. First Peter for the wives. First Peter 3, 1, 2 says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by your behavior. They will see the purity and reverence of your lives. Really, for our marriages to be marriages that bring us happiness, bring us joy, they need to be marriages that honor God, and they need to be built around biblical principles. And as hard as it is in the natural, this kind of submission and this kind of authority, this kind of love, are part of God's principles for a marriage to work. When they're both done in a biblical way, who wouldn't want to be in that kind of marriage? What guy wouldn't want to love his wife who submitted to him in all things? What woman wouldn't be glad to submit to a husband who loved her unconditionally as Christ loves the church? And out of that will grow blessings and blessings and blessings. It will change our families. It will change our communities. It will change our culture if the foundation is fixed. And again, we can do all the effort in the world without God and it won't ultimately work. He's still the answer. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to do that. Acknowledge your sin. Accept his sacrifice on the cross as taking our penalty, our wrath, and that he was raised from the dead. And surrender your life to him. And the grace gates of grace will be opened in your life to be the kind of husband or kind of wife that God wants you to be. We need to continually submit to his will and his perfect plan. Let's close in prayer. Father, I praise you and thank you that you loved us so much. You not only sent Jesus, you have given us the Holy Spirit in your word. You've given us principles for life, promises for life. Your word gives life even as we have a new life available through us through Christ. Lord, I praise you and thank you that you didn't leave us alone to do these things on our own, that the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in us, our teacher, our encourager, our guide, our comforter. Lord, I pray that as we've looked into your word these last few weeks about relationships, about marriage, about parenting, Lord, I pray that, first of all, I pray that anything that wasn't of you would fall to the ground and do no damage. Lord, I pray those things that you instruct us in would resonate in our hearts and our minds and you would just release the grace into husbands and wives 
to focus on their marriage as a representation of you and your bride, the church. Doing all that we can by your grace to bring glory and honor to you. And Lord, I pray for those areas of our marriages that need healing. God, where there has been such hurt, such frustration, such woundedness, God, I pray that you would, by your spirit, heal those wounds. Do the work that only you can do to bring us back to that place of restoration and reconciliation that we can truly go on and raise our families in homes that bring glory and honor to you and great, great blessing to us. And Lord, I pray now as we go our different directions that you would go before us, watch over us, keep us safe on the roads if they're slippery. And just pray, God, for, we, for us to have opportunities, opportunities to show the love of Christ, to share the love of Christ, to spread the good news of the gospel. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.